Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine, and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi, Joe. Hello, how's it going? Going well. It's going well. We just had a good, good. chat with Paddy. Yeah, we did have a good chat with Paddy Boyland. All about Everton Football Club. What's going on at Everton? Well, in the first half, we talked about the commercial activity at Everton. Uh, my favourite bit about that is the is the, the Angry Birds conversation. So I think hold on and, and listen to that. Um, we also talk about the Sports Pacer deal, how Everton are searching for a new shirt sponsor and there'll be a new manufacturer and it's all happening, you know, at the moment. So there's a, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, and then Seb drills down on the stadium plans. Bramley Moore Dock. So we talk a little bit about that. Um, half time, we have a 10 minute tactics bit with Alex Stewart, who comes in and tells us what he thinks of Everton, some specific areas of interest. And in the second half, we follow that back up with Paddy uh, talking about Dominic Calvert Lewin, Jean Philippe Gabamin, and uh, also um, a little bit of a little bit of Andre Gomez and a little bit of Gilfie Sigurdsson. I thought the Sigurdsson chat was really interesting. Like the, yeah. Um, the, the Calvert-Lewin bit is, uh, if, if for anyone, we, we do mention this during the, the pod, but um, after after you finish listening, do check out some of Paddy's work on uh, on Calvert-Lewin because he's an interesting player and there's all kinds of things that I, um, you know, that people won't have um, won't have known about his career. But uh, no, it's a really strong segment and um, yeah, I learned a lot. The Angry Birds bit is good, actually. Guess where you can go and check out Paddy's work, Seb? Is it on The Athletic? <laughs> it's on The Athletic, it is. <laughs> There's an offer. How much would that cost me a day if I wanted to subscribe? Do you know what? I actually don't know right now because I think we're between <laughs> offers, so I can't tell you. There is an offer, I think, right? It's either, I think the 90-day free offer is over, 90-day free trial is over, but I'm, there'll definitely be a free trial, whatever the offer is. But basically, this is if a, you go this is to a compelling argument you're making, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might it actually might be fifty percent off again. I can't remember, but like honestly, I don't I, I don't know. But if you go to theathletic.com forward slash tifo, uh, the offer will present itself to you, and whatever it is, it will be good. Okay, and whichever version of it it is, it will include a free trial. So even if you just want to cancel that before the week or the ninety days is over or whatever. Pfft, be my guest, but do please go and read uh, Paddy's work and Greg O'Keefe's work as well, who who writes uh, about Everton alongside Paddy, because a lot of the stuff they do, they they're like they're clued into the club, and it's so interesting. They have they have such an interesting perspective on it. I think both you know in Paddy's case, both as as, um, as a fan, but also as a as a journalist and reading their things, not as an Everton fan, I found particularly interesting. Um, so I would encourage everyone to go and and and, and do that. Can I can I give a um, a little a little nod to that? podcast as well because um when we were preparing for this i um i listened to five or six episodes of glad tidings and um it was really great i'm, I'm not an everton fan of course um but the range of conversations is good um there's a really good bit on luke garber and whatever happened to his career that you, know, you should look out for as well yeah yeah hey well there we go anyway that's all from us for now and uh, we will leave you in the very capable hands of i was about to say dominic calvert lewin <laughs> not doing that paddy boyland <laughs> Paddy, can you uh, update us on the commercial situation at Everton? I mean, with specific reference to the the Sport Pacer shirt sponsorship, which we know is is coming to an end, and we also know that Everton is searching for a for a new blue chip sponsor. Um, how's that search going? And, and presumably, the the pandemic has had a bit of an effect on that. Is that fair to say? I, th- I think the pandemic will have 
quite a substantial impact on future commercial deals. Um, where Everton were at a slight disadvantage, if we if we can even call it that, is that they'd started doing the majority of the groundwork before COVID nineteen hit. So um, they were making progress on the blue chip sponsor, as they as they like to call it. They have done substantial groundwork on the the stadium front, the new stadium that will be down on the uh, the banks of the River Mersey at Bramley Moor Dock. So I think Everton are actually in a better position than most to ride this particular wave out. Um, Our understanding is that they are making progress and should be able to announce something in the relatively near near future regarding a a sponsor. And then we have the other matter of um, the kit manufacturing deal, which they're currently with Umbro. Last summer they signed what was described as a multi-year deal suggesting not one year, but two, three, four, but unspecified, basically. That will also end, according to our information. So they will end up with a new kit manufacturer. They will have a new shirt sponsor. And basically what they've done, predominantly is as a kind of part of a strategic review over the last few years. They've looked at the performance commercially. They've looked at the financial performance across the board. And obviously Everton made a loss of 112 million as it was for the last financial year. That just that, that puts them right up against it in terms of FFP uh, and other kind of UEFA regulations. Um, UEFA re- regulations actually are even more stringent. It's meant to be 75 million, I think, over, over three years. And they've decided off the back of that that they're going to be tougher with... Um, potential partners, i.e. If, if you can't follow our trajectory or you don't show our ambition, then you need to you, you need to go elsewhere. It's Economically, do you mean? Yeah, put up, shut up kind of philosophy with regards right. to the economics and um, some partners will continue, but I think the vast majority will will, will move on. As, it, as I say, that will result in a, in a new shirt sponsor. It will result in a new kit manufacturer. They will also, the, the partnership with Angry Birds, Rovio, the umbrella company from Finland, um, is also under review, although both parties have been happy up to now with, with how that deal's gone in, in a variety of different ways. So it does feel as though maybe even though this is not an ideal time to be looking at new partners, the fact that Everton have been doing this since certainly since January and before gives them an advantage and they have made substantial um, progress, if you will. In, in the search for those um, th- those new partners moving forward. Paddy, can I just ask, um, what's the sort of, I know you can only really speculate on this, but what's the what's the ideal partner in this situation, both, both as a, a kit manufacturer, headliner? Um, is, it, is it a question of trying to associate the club with a different type of brand as well as one that's sort of economically viable? Is it a sort of a, um, almost a kind of uh, advancement by association type of situation? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's got to be a, a symbiotic process. And I think sometimes, looking back on past deals, Everton, Everton had Nike 2013-14 um, um, and, and the year afterwards as well, um, under Roberto Martinez, that was. Um, and the main complaint from supporters, at least, was that um, the kits were pretty generic. They were what uh, Nike were effectively delivering the same template as was being found elsewhere. I think that's really important for Everton fans that they have something that's kind of unique and a bit different, and and that the partners of the club buy in to to Everton as an institution and Everton as a brand. And 
maybe maybe that's a bit inward looking and maybe maybe actually we should be looking at the the pound signs at the end of the check but um and the, and the amount of zeros there but um everton have never really worked that way and so it's certainly not until recently and that this i think is has prompted the strate- strategic review as it's, as it's now being known in in regards to a blue chip, blue chip sponsor everton need commercial deals that push them as close as possible to the top six clubs i mean there's not really a question of, of money in raw terms. Fahad Mashiri is a wealthy man. He is connected to wealthy people that can funnel resources into Everton Football Club. And if there was no such thing as, as financial fair play, Everton would effectively be able to continue unchecked and continue to spend vast amounts of money in the transfer market. It's the fact that you have financial fair play and the, the current accounting situation, which means that Everton almost have to... They, well, they have to abide by those rules. They, they have to look at kind of innovative ways in some cases to, um, to, to maximise revenue, to push themselves towards the top six. And, and obviously that gap is only increasing. So maybe it's a bit of a cop-out, but to me, it, it, it's a two-way street. You, you need a partner that respects the club, but you also need a partner more than anything really at this moment in time for Everton that can, that can push them on and um, provide them with, with the cash to overcome some of those question marks that still linger in the background to some extent. Paddy, can I ask how FFP is considered by um, Everton fans then? Because I'm always curious uh, how fans of different uh, different clubs feel about it. And presumably it, it's normally, uh, you know, based on that their own club's situation. But I imagine that some Everton fans must feel that's a li- little bit unfair given what other uh, rival teams in, in, in areas not too far away have done over the past 10 years before um, the regulations came into play. Is it, is it a topic of conversation in the stands or, or is it just sort of accepted? Yeah, I, I think it is a topic of discussion um, and certainly fans look at Manchester City, about 40 miles up the, the East Length Road and even Chelsea going, going slightly further back. Look at what they've done and how they were they were able to progress basically unchecked with with their spending, and almost wonder what might have been had Farhad Mashiri appeared on the stage ten years earlier. I mean, Farhad Mashiri arrived at Goodison and he, he spoke. This was twenty sixteen. He spoke of there being a a really short window in which Everton could attempt to bridge the gap between themselves and the the traditional big six, if you, if you want to call them that. You would now suggest four years on that that's going to be harder than ever, given the commercial might of, of those clubs and kind of how Liverpool have expanded in terms of stadium and, and even stature in some cases, Manchester United, Manchester City. These are big global organisations and Everton at times have been quite, some fans won't like it, but parochial and small in terms of mindset and it, it, a lot has been centred on the local kind of Liverpool four North Liverpool community. So Everton are attempting to make those strides and I think they are moving closer to being a, what I would class as a 21st century club in that regard and, and a, a, an almost a sustainable 21st century club. But it will take time. It will take time and, and certainly Evertonians, it's almost a what-if moment. If What if Fahad Mashiri had arrived 10 years earlier? Would we now be in a position that say a Chelsea or Manchester City are in. We don't know because Everton have made lots of bad decisions over over four years. Lots of good decisions too. But um, it is a topic of conversation. Certainly, I just I just feel almost that while that's brought up, we have to just live with the current situation. And the current situation is that those rules exist. 
Everton know as a club they need to adhere to them. There's there's no chance of Everton looking at this and saying, well, a few other clubs have flouted the rules, so we're going to try and flout the rules too. Every indication we've had that Everton believe that A, they can strengthen the squad, and B, they can do that by adhering to financial fair play. I just have to be honest and say I'm not entirely sure how you how you square that circle. Um, Paddy, one of the people who's going to be heavily involved in this process is presumably going to be Denise Barrett-Baxendale, the, um, the chief executive. Um, she doesn't really have a, an awful lot of profile in the way that, and you know, this is probably a good thing in the way that someone like Karen Brady does in football. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about her and her background and her skill set? Yeah, so she, she actually rose to prominence at Everton as um, the head of the, the club's charity, official charity, Everton in the community. Did lots of pioneering work there and Everton do see themselves as a community club, as I've mentioned. Barrett Baxendale was at the centre of that. She pushed it forward um, to an extent, both in the community and at Everton as well, raising the profile of the charity um, within the squad to such an extent that the squad now sign up to a pledge that they're going to to give back an X amount of hours to the local community every season, every year. So she she rose to prominence through that. She's very well connected with what I would class as old Everton, so people like Bill Kenwright, people like John Woods, who who was on the board, those kind of guys. um, She's highly thought of within the club by old and new Everton. Um, And I think she's almost, she's become a bridging point between those two regimes. You've still got Bill Kenwright there, the the former owner as the chairman, but then you also have Farhad Mashiri and people he's brought on board. Say, for example, like Sasha Ryazantsev, the, the Russian who who plays a role on the board and is, is heavily in, involved in the, the financial and, and commercial side of things. Um, so Barrett Baxendale rose from her position at Everton the community. Uh, there was a, a vacancy when Robert Elstone, who, who was the last CEO, left to join Rugby League uh, and, and in a similar ro- role at Rugby League. And Barrett Baxendale was the in-house candidate who had, I think, what the Everton board and the powers that be considered to be the outstanding credentials. And I think the best way to to summarise her impact so far is that, first of all, she's conducted this strategic review. Everton will push forward in terms of their, uh, their commercial deals and their commercial output. They continue to do that year on year and will need to do so for, for a good while yet if they're going to overcome some of the hurdles in front of them. But also we were given a fantastic example when we, when we did a little bit of digging. We, we looked at Barrett Baxendale's role as Everton CEO in relation to COVID and, and, the, and the, the crisis, the pandemic that's, that's obviously engulfed, engulfed much of the, the Western world and, and beyond. And I think it was, it was late January, early February when Everton people at Everton were having discussions over what they were seeing in China and how prepared Everton would be if this did, as expected, come over to the UK. And this was long before really even kind of local authorities and and even the British government, dare I say it, were having those serious questions. Staff were having, staff had software instilled on, on their laptop so they'd be ready to work from home if needs be. Barrett Baxendale ordered a review of, of of where Everton sat financially and, and whether they'd be able to kind of adequately survive um, a global recession kind of brought about by COVID. So I think she's quite forward thinking. I think she's impressed most of the people she's she's come into contact with. 
maybe wasn't as as Seb's pointed out, maybe wasn't a name that was was widely known outside of Everton circles and charity circles before she got the the big gig uh, at Goodison. But it's it's certainly making an impact behind the scenes and and driving the club forward in in, in my estimation at least. It's interesting that you you, you know you mentioned the idea of her being. Um forward thinking there I mean that's that example certainly sounds like it and something that uh, Seb and I were talking about before the podcast was the Angry Birds relationship which you've already uh, referenced once um, it's something that you know to be very honest with you we thought when we first saw it it was a bit cheap but uh, we listened to you guys talking about it on a recent um, Glad Tidings podcast and you and Greg O'Keefe sounded you know, very positive about it and, and talked about its innovation a little bit. I wonder if you just talk a little bit more about that, that whole relationship there and how it, how it started and how it's gone. Yeah, I mean, Angry, Angry Birds took over. They, they became Everton's first sleeve sponsor, so they, they sponsored the sleeve. And the, the main idea was from Angry Birds' side to position themselves for more of an assault on the, the markets that the Premier League are attached to appeal to younger footballing fans, have those kind of promotions that cross over from purely Angry Bird fanatics into Everton fans, Premier League fans and elsewhere, effectively raising the profile. They, they, uh, I'm led to believe they had a, um, a, they got the game out, but I'm led to believe they also um, were positioning themselves ahead of the launch of, a, of an Angry Birds film. Um, I've not seen that, but I'm, I'm assured it's out somewhere. <laughs> a lot um, of big American comedy names, I think. Well, yeah, who knows? <laughs> who, who knows, quite frankly. But I, I know that has been deemed to be a success on the Angry Birds side. They, they've been pretty happy with the partnership. And Everton, it's allowed Everton, while Angry Birds have tapped into Everton's market, Everton have done the same with Angry Birds fans that go onto the game and they see some Everton players as Angry Birds characters. So um, Jenk Tosin, Theo Walcott were two off the top of my head about a year ago that were turned into characters. Recently it was Jordan Pickford, Andre Gomez. And that does of course prompt hilarity from supporters <laughs> of other clubs. It it's prompted hilarity from part of the Everton fan base, let me <laughs> let me tell you. And and yes, maybe some people do believe that it looks a little bit cheap on the on the sleeve. It, it kind of it it's not what your traditional football fan might expect. But the reason I think we've both been so positive is, first of all, because we've heard positive noises from both clubs and we've also seen the way Everton have pushed things on in terms of innovation and the way they've done that with a partner that does get them into different constituencies, different get them out there with different demographics. Like I say, if Everton only appealed to their Liverpool, Northwest, hinterland and their base, then they're not going to grow as a club. And I think there has to be an acceptance that leaving Goodison allows them to do that. But also things like Angry Birds allow them to reach people that would never, ever really have come into contact with Everton. And even if they did, they they, they might have looked at Everton and said, well, why would I be at all interested in them when there is when there's, when there's Liverpool, when there's Manchester United, Manchester City, all these clubs within a, an hour radius of the, of the city of Liverpool that are, are doing much better things on the pitch. So, so it has. I think it has been considered a, a success. It's still up for review. If they don't want to put up more money, then maybe the deal doesn't happen again. It's not renewed. Um, but that's that's what Everton are asking of every partner at this moment in time, really. 
I tell you what, here's some Angry Birds film facts. Just, uh, <laughs> I've just been looking it up, Paddy, as you were talking. It's actually, you know what? It's a very impressive cast. You've got Jason Sudeikis, Josh, Josh Gad, Danny McBride. Oh, here we, here we go with the big names now. Uh, Bill Hader, Sean Penn. Sean Penn. Wow. And wow, Peter okay. Dinklage, of course, from uh, Game of Thrones fame. Uh, a screenplay written by John Vitti, who I believe was a Simpsons writer and actually also wrote on the Larry Saunders show. So, uh, you know, egg on our face for not having seen it. Clearly, it must be an incredible film. But I interrupted you, I will you, resolve Seth. to watch this now. <laughs> we I, should I, do. Actually, I've got an awful lot of time on my hands, as, as have we all. So, I mean, <laughs> No live not? sport. You could write a film review of it if you wanted, Paddy. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. <laughs> Coming soon on The Athletic, Ever- Everton and Angry Birds, the film. So, because um, cause Joe uh, cut me off mid-question, I'm going to shame him live on the pod. Um, so when um, <laughs> I was in the office the day of the uh, Game of Thrones last season finale, and all he did for about an hour and a half was hum the theme tune again and again and again <laughs> and again. That, because that's the kind of person he is, and the kind of person you're dealing with, Paddy. Um, so, <laughs> we talk about the, the new stadium. Oh no! Oh, it's just it's, it's, I, I was asking new for that. stadium. You ask about the new, new stadium. stadium. Now. I'll just hum that in my Joe, head. Don't make me mute you. Don't make me mute you. <laughs> um, Paddy, I want to ask because obviously I think a lot of people would say the same thing. Like, Goodison Park is one of the best grounds in the country for a lot of reasons, and many of those are the things that you encounter before you actually get inside the stadium. Um, I know a couple of guys who sell fanzines around there, and a couple of seasons ago they took me around and they showed me sort of the. Um, the the red brick uh, wall where people remember uh, fans who have passed away and lay flowers um, and I just want to know what what's the after um, after the move to Brownlee um, more dock happens what's the plan with the land uh, that Goodson's built on at the moment because obviously that's um you know that's right in the middle of a, a, a you know a community um, and what are the what are the plans there to kind of not replace it but sort of um, well, I guess, yes, replace it. Yeah, well, bringing, bringing this back to um, Denise Barrett-Baxendale again, uh, it was a couple of years ago at a, an Everton general meeting where Denise Barrett-Baxendale was, was giving a speech and she, she spoke about leaving Goodison and how she was having kind of sleepless nights thinking about how Everton did this. And the reason I think she was having sleepless nights was because Goodison is in Walton and Walton is a, is a poor part of Liverpool, but by proxy, given how poor Liverpool is in relation to some parts of the rest of the country that makes it poor across the country it, it makes it poor period if, if you will so leaving Goodison and knowing the impact that that would likely have on the chippies the pubs the um, the bars everything on County Road which is which is kind of just a stone's throw away from Goodison I think pose some difficult questions to people who have had that long attachment and connection to the club and I would include myself in that you kind of wonder the impact that that will have on communities that are already poor and that do to an extent rely on on Everton Football Club for for match day trade and and kind of resources so Denise Barrett-Baxendale as she tells it she um, she was having those sleepless nights and then realised that well what, what do we do? We actually, we don't really leave. And, and this leads us on to Everton's, what they're calling the legacy project. They will, they will move to Bramley Moor Dock um, in time for 2023, 20, 24, all being well, if they, if they stick on, stick on timetable, I think it's September-ish um, that season. But they will have also committed to the legacy project at Goodison Park. So what they will do is they will 
keep the land, they will gift it to a number of partners who they hope to get on board. They sign, they've signed a couple up already, um, NHS and, and a few others. And they plan to have a range of different things on the site of Goodison. So there will be um, affordable housing schemes. We do, They will also have landscape gardens. There will be uh, a community centre. There will be shopping facilities, health centre, uh, mental health hub, which is um, which is something that they've been doing for a while to, to one extent or another. Mental health work is part of Everton in the community. Effectively, is, is, that, is a mental health hub exactly what it sounds, Paddy? A, a it is, yeah, to, it very much does what it says on the tin. And okay. in in that sense, um, Everton will gift the land to potential partners. The, poten- the p- potential partners will develop the land and then profits will be split 50-50 with 100%, we're told, of, of Everton's profit going back into Everton and the community. So it's effectively Everton's way of bestowing something back um, to it's the a community. pretty great idea. It is. It's, it's a fantastic idea, and it one that if you spoke to a hundred Evertonians, a hundred Evertonians would tell you this is the right thing to do. Um, so there's, there's a the, the, the club has always had, as I would put it, a, a, a strong moral compass. That's you can accuse Everton of being a lot of things, um, and at times they've been really poor on the pitch. But I don't think you could ever accuse Everton of not caring for their local community, and this is just another example of that. But I mean, I. I all of us are touched by these these schemes. I, mean, I, I remember my, my my dad and my my granddad are, are both Everton fans. But my granddad was going to some of those um, initiatives uh, a number of years ago, and at one point uh, he, he was he was he really wasn't particularly well, but and wasn't able to interact as maybe as much as as, as we knew he could. But one day he was given the chance to to go around Goodison and and share memories with other Everton supporters, and he just just came alive. Uh, um, just being inside the, the stadium, um, it kind of rekindled something in him that we thought had gone. And I think Everton does do that better than most. And may, maybe there's an element of bias there. I'm an Everton fan. I'm an Everton journalist. But I do think I do think that there is that kind of strong moral compass there, and that makes it makes it easier for me to stomach leaving leaving Goodison Park because I know Everton have to move in order to progress, in order to to keep growing as an entity. But I also know that Everton needs to do the right thing by the people of Walton, close to Goodison Park. And it very much seems like they're doing that here. It's actually really nice to hear because I, a couple of years ago, I was, um, I was in Coventry and I wandered up to where Highfield Road used to be. And I mean, it's not identical, but the, 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 the area is not dissimilar to what surrounds Goodison. It's quite a lot of terrace housing, quite a lot of red brick. Um, and where the stadium used to be, it's just become this weirdly incongruous you know, like a kind of um, a white stone housing, not a state, but a, just a project. Um, these big, tall terrace housings, which houses which loom over what was there originally. It's like it's like someone has quite literally gouged something out of the out of the community and just dropped something else in, regardless of whether it fits or not. And it's just also for people that um for people who don't who don't live in Britain and and who aren't used to sort of to um, stadiums in communities and you know. Um, obviously, America is quite like that. You have a lot of a lot of out of town stands, uh, a lot of out of town stadiums. Um, one of the problems is that um, when stadiums and teams leave, a lot of businesses uh, who were previously nourished by the team and by the footfall the team um, team drew suffer as a result. And um, when I was in Coventry, 
uh, I spoke to um, a woman who owned a local news agent, and she said that sort of the um, there's a local park near there, and all the funding that used to do things like pick up litter and clean graffiti and you know send people in to make sure that you know there wasn't crime going on and it was a safe place for kids to play all of that funding has dried up because people don't see that part of commentary anymore um and it never even occurred to me so it's really nice to hear that that sort of it's not everton aren't just approaching this with the usual rhetoric it's actually a considered community-based response to to it it's it's really heartening actually paddy yeah, I think that's something that unites all all Evertonians really. And like I say, Goodison leaving Goodison is going to be a drag for for all of us. Although, uh, if you look at the surveys that have been conducted by the club, uh, there's a there's overwhelming support for the move. People understand it and get it. I mean, talking from a, a pretty selfish standing point as a as a journalist, anybody that's ever been to Goodison Park, you you'll know this yourself, Seb. Uh, anyone that's ever been to Goodison Park knows how kind of cramped the uh, for want of a better phrase the, the the media facilities are how much they, they lag behind even places like Brighton at the Amex um, and I'm not saying I want a replica of 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 the Amex because that's in a particular area and it, it, it's out of town a little bit it, 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 it's well connected but I think Everton need to be closer to the heart of the local community but there are, there are things wrong with Goodison that can't be overcome even really by demolishing stands and stuff like that, which which isn't really feasible anyway, and um, and so the decision has has rightly been taken. It's time for time for a move. Um, we're going to leave some very very happy memories behind. But if Everton want to progress, they need to to go elsewhere. Um, do that, but also keep an eye on your your local community and. Hopefully, then it doesn't become. You don't end up with a scenario where you you leave and you go to this kind of soulless bowl on the outside of a, on the outskirts of a city, like like say the Macron or or, or, or something like that. What, what is it now? The University of Bolton Stadium. Yeah, University um, of Bolton. Yeah, it ch- changes all the time. Um, used to be the Reebok. It's in a very strange um, place, though. I mean, you wouldn't know where you were if you were standing outside of it without the club's crest and everything on it. Yeah, and, and given that given that Everton is, there's a really unique identity about Everton as a club there, there are traditions that supporters want to see observed and if they turn up at a retail, an out of town retail park and there's a stadium just being plonked there as originally was suggested with, with the move the failed move to, to Kirby um, a part of a place just outside of Liverpool um, I, th- I think there would have been uproar really uh, in that case so I believe and I hope that Everton are marrying the two. Everton are get going to a community that needs development, as Bramley Moore does. That's another really poor ward in the, in the city of Liverpool. But then they're also making sure that the other community is not left behind. That seems to be, well, significantly better than the examples we've cited there in, in the case of Coventry and also Bolton. Okay, Alex, um, it's uh, Alex Stewart's 10-minute tactics point now. Uh, What have you been learning about Everton? So Everton are quite an interesting side. Um, They are good to very good at a lot of things. Um, Their ball progression is decent. They have some really strong players in in wide positions. Um, If you look at the, the metrics, they're particularly good at getting the ball forwards into the attacking third, so they they rank above their league position for things like 
touches in the penalty area, successful completions of passes into the attacking third. Um, what they are lacking seems to be a kind of hard centre. So the the central midfield positions are problematic for Everton. And, and there's a couple of things that, that that throws up, which is quite interesting. So what they're not very good at is, and I say not very good, I mean they're bottom of the league for uh, what we would define as short passing. So passes that are five metres uh, or less. Um, they have a 26% completion rate, which is the worst in the league by some margin. So uh, Brighton and Wolves are the next worst. Um, they're both on 31%. If you're looking at the best teams in the league, that's Chelsea on 45%. So you can see the, the difference there. What that means is that Everton are not very, very good at working the ball in tight spaces. Now, there are various possible reasons for this. And, and you know, unfortunately, it's quite difficult to go back and watch every single one of Everton's games and look for sort of compelling reasons that cross across all of these. But what it does suggest is that if Everton are pressured by teams, particularly in wide areas, they have difficulty working the ball through those tight spaces. Um and that is obviously a weakness. They're, they're also the third worst for miscontrols. So when those passes are kind of fired into them, particularly in short areas, they're quite often losing the ball as a result of taking a heavy touch and then letting the opposition steal it or possibly knocking it out of play. Now, this is an issue that they have, particularly in the wide areas. There are two reasons for that. Firstly, they, they work the ball through the wide areas most uh, I think they're the third or fourth uh, most skewed team for not attacking through the centre. So obviously there's a natural predisposition for them to do that and it puts pressure on those players out there. Their most creative players are their wide players, particularly on the left-hand side with Richarlison, uh, Luca Dean. However, what it also means is that the midfield is not crossing over into the wide spaces to help them out. And so what that means is those attacking players can get isolated. They can only have each other to work with, you know, the the, the fullback and the, and the wide attacking midfielder. And it's much, much easier to get the ball off Everton. Um, when you watch them, what's clear is that they are good at, you know, working the ball laterally across the pitch. They've got some good passes. They've got good technical players like Alex Iwobi, for example, who's really competent at that. But this is a clear weakness that they have. And it, and it stems, I think, from their overall weakness, which is the central midfield area. OK, well, can I ask you then? I mean, obviously, Carlo Ancelotti is the Everton manager. And perhaps this is this is uh, my sort of stereotypical expectations of an Italian football manager uh, or my sort of layman's version of what I imagined Ancelotti to be in the past. This doesn't strike me as an Ancelotti, an Ancelotti team. I would have thought that I associate him with sort of technical um, midfield players. Am I wrong to do so? I think what's interesting about Ancelotti is that he's he's a very, very good manager, right? You know, he's he's won an awful lot. But the way that he tends to do that is is less about having a clear tactical identity that he cleaves to in the same way that, for example, a, a Jurgen Klopp would uh, or, or a Marcelo Bielsa would. Ancelotti is great at maximising the players that he's already got and finding a system that suits them. So across the course of his career, he's used different formations, he's used different approaches. Um, yes, he tends to favour possession to a degree. He's kind of in that what, what we call the press and possess school of football. And Everton are pretty good at pressing. 
and they're pretty good at working the ball into attacking areas. But it's very difficult to say with Ancelotti that there is a clear kind of tactical philosophy at work there. If you were to say Ancelotti had a philosophy, it would be, how can I adapt my system to get the best out of the players that I have? Um, I think that's one of the reasons why Ancelotti is such a popular manager in, in dressing rooms, is that he doesn't come in and seek to impose a style that is blanket across all of the teams that he works with. He's really, really good at assessing who he's got and how he can make the best of them. I think that's why, for example, you see players like Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who've really improved under Ancelotti. They've they've started doing things differently. You know, the focus is is more on running onto through balls. It's more on working with with the wide players, and it's less about being a kind of target man. Uh, and and we've seen uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin really improving his game because of that. And that's because Ancelotti comes in and goes right. You know, what are people's strengths? What do they want to be doing? And how can I create a system? That, that most supports that. Of course, what that doesn't do is ameliorate the issues that you have in central midfield, where generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that the, that the players are not necessarily of the quality in terms of controlling that, that position on the pitch. You know, there's obviously when they bought Gabamin, part of that was to add this degree of midfield control uh, to find somebody who was more press resistant um, and he's had incredible injury problems. It remains to be seen if he's going to be that player. I think the signs were good when he was at Mainz, but obviously it's really, really hard to know if someone's going to adapt and fill that role when they've they've barely played. Um, otherwise, that central midfield looks quite workmanlike. And, you know, they've... Um, Ancelotti has shifted between a 4-2-3-1 with a double pivot... He's used a, a 4-4-2, but where both wide players are kind of central midfielders-ish who tuck in a little bit. So, you know, playing Gilfie Sigurdsson in a wide position, for example. He's obviously aware that this is an issue. He's obviously aware that most of his penetration is coming from his fullbacks overlapping or from working with, you know, players like Richarlison uh, and trying to feed the, the forward line. But if you don't have a midfield that can get across an assist, you know, in the sort of the channel area, the half space, whatever you want to call it, who's able to to create those little triangles that mean teams win possession, by default, you kind of end up playing quite a direct style of football and quite a wide style of football because you don't have confidence in the midfield players to be able to sustain a more passing game. And Everton's best kind of use of the midfield in a offensive way rather than a defensive way is to pull the opposition team to one side and then quickly circulate the ball kind of vertically across um, which they're capable of doing you know the, the players if they have enough space and time they are able to do that to switch the play but they're not going to be able to get into the tight spaces and and work those little moves in the way that say a Chelsea or, or a Spurs are able to. I mean, I guess the problem, well, one of the things I think for Everton is that they don't really have many midfield central midfielders. Well, I mean, who do, who do we have? We have Morgan Schneiderlin, Fabian Delph. I mean, we've mentioned Gabamin already, uh, Andre Gomez. But uh, would your suggestion be in this situation, and based on how you've seen Ancelotti try to, 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 to play Everton so far, that um, bringing in a central midfielder would be something they should be looking to do? Or, or is this just a style choice based on the strengths of the squad? 
It's really, really hard to answer that. Um, I, I think in Tom Davis, I think they've got a player who does have that technical ability. Um, Davis is really, really capable, particularly getting forwards. He seems to have the kind of passing range to be able to play both elements of that. I suspect that the the compromise that Ancelotti's been making up to this point, where it's it's generally speaking, you see quite a lot of of Delph and Schneiderling playing together. For example, this was the, the the system that was used against Arsenal in their most recent game. You put the more creative players outside of them. You play Richarlison alongside Calvert Lewin, but able to drop off and work in the wide space as well. And what he's looking for is is solidity in central midfield. He's looking for midfielders who will screen and press and try and win the ball back and give it to the guys who are then capable of doing something with it. Like Liverpool? Not dissimilar to Liverpool in that regard, yes. I mean, I think... I, think I mean, I say in- that not to compare Everton to Liverpool, but just to, to make a comparison for myself almost to recognise that you don't have to have um, a particularly flashy central midfield pairing to win the title, for example. No, that's absolutely right. And I think if you look at, at what Liverpool's midfield are good at doing, it is good at pressing, screening and and passing the ball on to the people who are doing the bulk of the creative work, which are the fullbacks and the wide players as they are with Everton. I think the two differences are that Liverpool use a 4-3-3, which means that their central midfield naturally, because there are three of them, do move across into into the half spaces and help out with that build-up play if that's required. Um, that's why when we did the Metzala video, you know, people were talking about some of those Liverpool midfielders like Wijnaldum or, or even Henderson as, as being capable of doing that. The other thing is that Liverpool, by buying Naby Keita and also bringing Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain back from injury and bringing him into the first team, clearly show that that very kind of destructive, competent, but not flashy central midfield isn't always the answer to those questions, that you do sometimes need to have a player who can push up into the half space, who can do a little bit more creatively, who can drift out into the wide areas and help with build-up play. So... Liverpool are sometimes like that, but they don't always want to be like that. And because they have a greater diversity in their squad of of player profiles, they are able to answer that requirement. Everton, it seems like they don't really have that. Um, You know, Sigurdsson isn't really a central midfielder. He's not really a wide player. He's kind of a more physically robust looking number 10. But there isn't particularly a space for that in the way that Everton are playing. And so you either lose some of the midfield solidity by playing Sigurdsson as part of a double pivot, or you stick him into a wide area and hope that he can tuck inside. But again, it's not its not quite the right balance of stuff. So if I were Everton, I would certainly, you know, I'd be, I'd be praying that Gabamin comes back and is able to do what he kind of promised he might do when he was at Mainz. And I would look to pair him with Davis, who I think does have that range of skills. But I'm also not entirely sure that doing that in a kind of 4-4-2 situation with these tucking in players in the wide areas is is the best way to go about that either. No, okay. Uh, well, just before we go back to the main episode, Alex, can you talk me through some of your XG findings as well? Because they're, they're interesting. Yeah, so... Um, there's a couple of other things about Everton. They are the fourth worst team for, for what we'd say is um, goals minus XG. So it's basically a measure of 
how many goals you've scored in relation to how many goals we'd expect you to have scored. Uh, and they are, the, like I say, they're the, they're the fourth worst, um, uh, minus 6.5. Only Norwich, Watford and Sheffield United are worse. So they've scored six and a half goals fewer than you would expect from the chances that they've been able to create. Um, that's indicative of maybe a, an over-reliance on one striker, of maybe a, a lack of difference in the build-up, uh, of, of asking Calvert-Lewin to do too many things at the same time and not not giving him the support that he needs. Potentially as well, you know, they're, they're, they're coming up against goalkeepers who are having a great game or whatever. There's a degree of variance there, but that's certainly something to look out for. And it's particularly telling when... When you look at most of the other stats, you know, Everton are, like I said at the beginning, they're, you know, they're top half of the table. In some instances, they're top six or seven. This is a, a real marker of, of, of not being that. Um, their best players, incidentally, um, for, for scoring in relation to uh, their XG are, are Richarlison, Bernard and Calvert-Lewin. The worst, Holgate, well, I mean, that's kind of understandable. He's a centre-back, but but Sigerson shows up badly on that. Keane shows up badly on that, as does Theo Walcott. So they've got players who are, who are wasting good opportunities. Um, I think one other thing that's worth noting is that while they attempt a lot of tackles in the final third and they do press quite high, they are quite bad at tackling. Um, So they have the lowest percentage in the Premier League overall of tackles won rather than tackles attempted. Uh, Mm. They're around 55%. The league average is 60. It's not a massive difference, but it does show that, you know, they're trying to play this quite assertive pressing game, particularly high up the pitch. Um, But there's, again, what you could think of as a a technical deficiency around that. Um, So I think, you know, Everton... They're a good side. They can certainly improve, but there are technical areas is both in defence and in passing that they need to work on. And I think that, that a central midfielder is, is probably the best way to do both of those. Obviously, as well as Gabamin, they've got Andre Gomez coming back from injury. Um, and I think Gomez is possibly the answer to that as well. You know, he's, he's a, a good dribbler of the ball. He's quite progressive as a passer. I, I'm not entirely convinced that he's the overall answer, and I think that there are flaws to his game. Again, what you'd probably want to do is create a three-man midfield with Gomez as, as one of the outer ones, Gabamin as the kind of central anchor, and then either someone like Davis or maybe Schneidlin as, as the sort of box-to-box player. So I think Everton's options will be augmented when those players come back. But again, it's always really, really difficult to uh, to assume that a player is going to come back from injury the same player that they were before, uh, and it, it's not a great position to rely on. Where you know you're you're looking at trying to solve your your um, your midfield issues with two players who who've barely turned up that season because of injury. Okay, um, Paddy, let me ask you about uh, Jean-Philippe Gabamin then, because we, uh, Alex has just uh, talked about him from a tactics perspective there. Can you tell me more about his uh, return to fitness? Because he's he's arguably been a miss this season, hasn't he? Well, he's, he's been a, a huge miss. And I say that with having only seen 135 minutes of, of football <laughs> right. that he's, he's yeah. played. Um, he, 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 
came on at I think it was half time against Crystal Palace on the opening day of the season. Uh, did okay, but struggled at times with the pace and the tempo, understandably, coming from the Bundesliga. And then he played 90 minutes against Watford in a, in a 1 0 win over Watford. So we, we have a very small sample size, certainly at Everton. And um, there have been a number of problems. At first, first of all, he, he picked up a quadriceps injury. Everton thought initially that he didn't need surgery. Uh, and gave him a return to play time of, I think, two to three months. We got two or three months down the line, and in October it was announced that he would need surgery after all. Uh, and then there have been two um, relapses since then, um, and another bout of surgery. Um, so we we sit here recording in May, and um, Gabamin is still on the recovery trail. He's still not yet ready to resume what would have been full training had Everton been at, at Finch Farm over the last few weeks. Oh, admittedly, he, he is stepping it up now. He's, we're told he's working six days a week, doing multiple sessions a day. One is um, more of a cardio session where he'll do runs and treadmill work, high-intensity work. Presumably if he's been injured stuff. for such a long time, it will have an impact on his, his fitness more so than just being out for a couple of months, right? Yeah, well, there's that. And I think the other kind of hidden element that people don't realise is that he will come back not really knowing his new teammates as he should after nine, ten months at the football club. Normally, by that time, you're, you're, you're firmly bedded in. Even if you've had some teething problems adapting to a new way of football, you should be starting to show signs. And and Everton Everton fans laugh at, at cliches over he's going to be like a new signing. We've we've had that through famine times where Everton haven't had much money, and then we've seen PR spin on players that come back from injury. But I think in this case he actually will be. If I'm going to use the cliche myself, he will be like a new signing in in a multiple well in in a multitude of ways. First of all, you. You have the need for a central midfield presence, a kind of an enforcer type in the midfield, or certainly somebody that's defensive-minded. And second, he's going to need to have that adaptation period as well, where he learns how to dovetail with his future partner, learns how to kind of get back to match fitness, all that kind of stuff. I don't think he's far away from resuming full training, and a lot of the indications we're getting are positive. But anybody that thinks that football resumes and Jean-Philippe Gubamin will be there and kind of running the show for Everton from central midfield I think will be sorely sorely disappointed um just not gonna it's just not gonna transpire like that I think there has to be an element of of realism we probably won't see his best football before next season at the, the very very earliest yeah I mean it's well another way of looking at this as well is that you know any team would would have been lucky to have Idrissa Gay it's a fan, fantastic player um, is the idea, you know, for for me as a non-Everton supporter, was the idea with Gabamin that he would come in and sort of replace some of the dynamism that you lost with Gay, or or is that not quite? Is that too narrow a way of looking at him as a player? I think some of the dynamism is is, is probably the correct way of, of answering that. Yeah, I, I yeah, don't yeah. think Everton believed that they were going to be able to find another Idris Gay. They did look, and they did. They've got a, an analytics and recruitment team that works under Greta Steinson, the former Bolton. Um, player who's the chief scout at, at the club and they did look they did cast their net quite wide and look for players who were racking up the same amounts of defensive actions interceptions tackles ball recoveries all that kind of stuff as a Gay. 
But Adrissa Gay is a player that was interesting, not only was interesting, not only um, PSG, but other club top clubs in this country and, and elsewhere. He he was pretty unique in what he did. He was competing with Wilfred and Diddy at the top of just about every um, defensive metric for, for midfielders over a number of years. And it was decided that maybe Everton could find somebody that would do most of Adrissa Gay's work off the ball but that those players had serious rough edges to their game, particularly in possession. That meant that they, they weren't going to be suitable for a side that was kind of eighth, ninth in the table over the last few years and was positioning itself as a top six or a, a top four side of the future. So I think that's how they came on to Gavamin because he does some of Idrissa Gay's work, particularly if you look at kind of ball recoveries. He's strong in that aspect. He's mobile aggressive, different physical presence, um, whereas Gay's kind of small and, and, and got around the pitch. Gabamin's um Gabamin's a physical specimen. He's I think he's six foot two and um and, and has, has done well physically in the Bundesliga. Um but the thing that impressed Everton and also other people I spoke to that watched Gabamin was just that he was he was able to pick the ball up and transition um through the lines very quickly. With and without the ball, um, he um, he carries the ball well. He looks to play forward passes. Idrissa Gay was underrated in that aspect, in my opinion. But Gabamin probably has more upside at 24 than Idrissa Gay did in, in attacking elements. And really, the plan was was to find a holistic solution to replacing Idrissa Gay, whereby Everton up. Oh, some point under Marco Silva morphed from 4-2-3-1 to 4-3-3. And what that would mean is that instead of having two pivots in front of the back four, that it would have three guys, two of whom would would be comfortable at least doing the defensive work. You might have Kabamin with Fabian Delph, who they inquired, uh, acquired over the summer, and also Andre Gomez as well. Um, so between them, kind of Kabamin and Delph would do a lot of the, the donkey work that Adrissa Gay had mustered. The problem with that has been that Gabamin got injured, Gay was sold, and Everton then had serious problems in that kind of screening role. I mean, you've had Delph and Schneidlin, right, as a, as a kind of partnership for a while. Is that fair? Y- yes, but if you ask me what Everton, what Ancelotti and Silva thought was Everton's best kind of central defensive partnership, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, at the, the back end of last season, Silva's Everton did very, very well. If you look at results, they beat a lot of the top sides at Goodison. Um, and we're racking up kind of a, quite a decent amount of points that effectively they were performing as a top five-ish side towards the back end of last season. And that was based on uh, a partnership of Gay and Gomez in front of the back four and Schneidlin just in front. Then you had Bernard on the left, who is a busy, energetic player, wins the ball back quite a lot, presses pretty well. Um, and Theo Walcott on the other side, or Richarlison. Um, so it's kind of an energetic midfield that could do a little bit of everything. But losing Gay and then his replacement, Gabamin, I think has just highlighted some inadequacies in other players and inadequacies, inadequacies in the squad. And they've almost been compounded in some ways by Ancelotti's move to 4-4-2, which of course means that you've got at times a numerical disadvantage in that part of the pitch. Teams often play with 2-3 to three, central midfielders, Everton only have two and one of them tends to be Andre Gomez when he's fit and he's not the best defensively so the the irony is Everton sold G- 
gay looking to go in a different direction, looking to find a midfield that was more balanced and did a little bit of everything. Ancelotti's reversion to 4-4-2 arguably means that Everton now need the Drissa game more than ever. Um, so uh, the irony there is not is not lost on me. Um, but they, they're getting Gabamin back, you would think, relatively soon. And also Ancelotti, as, as, a, as an absolute priority, is identified, as you said earlier, the need for an addition in central midfield that provides what he considers to be more energy to the equation. Paddy, can we talk about Dominic Alvalon? Um Back in, was it February or March, you wrote about his um, his background, his journey to the Everton first team. Um, if anyone hasn't read that, go, go and take a look. It's, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, and one of the themes that jumps out was something that I, I recognised in myself is that at every point of his career, people have kind of assumed that he wasn't going to be good enough. Well, it's not everyone, but there was somebody who thought, right, you're not ready for the first team. You can't play at this level. You're not a good enough goal scorer. There's even a a bit later on in your piece, which is pretty unusual to read, um, where someone says he's he's too selfless. He's he's too willing to do hard yards up front and run into channels and that kind of thing. Um, And I thought exactly the same. I think about six months ago, I remember having a conversation on Twitter with an Everton fan and said, like, I can just never see him scoring more than about five or six goals a season. Um, But he just, he's fascinating because he's like, he reminds me a little bit of... um, uh, Thomas Muller I mean not in role but in the sense that he scores he scores a lot of goals and he scores a lot of scrappy goals he's an effective player but he's not a stylish one um, what's what kind of how long ago did Everton fans start waking up to the idea that this is a really good player and in your piece you mentioned it and I completely agree this is probably someone that would be in the England squad were it not for coronavirus yeah I, I absolutely believe that he would have been in that England squad because of his form but also then the, the injuries to to a few players that also normally would be in the picture. And in answer to your question, I think there was only a majority behind Dominic Calvert-Lewin as a top-level Premier League striker probably December onwards this season uh, at Everton. I was still having people turning around to me, friends and friends that I won't name now, but friends telling me um, <laughs> that he was a kind of open quotation marks, closed quotation marks, championship striker. Um, and what they meant by that was whatever he did off the ball, uh, the the main role for a centre forward is scoring goals. And I have to be honest, maybe this is with the benefit of hindsight, but I'd never believed that about Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I always knew that he needed to score more goals. And there was always that question mark as to whether he would be able to make that step. But I, I just fundamentally believe that the, the role of a centre-forward has changed over the years and what he did so well last season, even when he wasn't scoring that many goals. We talk, we talk about that run where they beat Manchester United 4-0, they beat Chelsea, they drew with Liverpool, um, beat Arsenal. Calvert-Lewin, if you watch those games back, Calvert-Lewin bullied the defences and he also created a lot of the space for Richarlison and Sigurdsson to then thrive. And I think that we've moved away from the Pippo Inzaghi kind of penalty box poacher striker and we, we now look for far more from our centre forwards. You see that with Liverpool and, and Jurgen Klopp with um when it comes to Roberto Firmino and a lot of a lot of the best complete all round striking performances I've seen from Everton strikers over the last five, six years have come from Dominic Calvert Lewin. I, I remember a game at the Etihad, it was in Cummins first season I think 
um, no, sorry, second season where Wayne Rooney had just been acquired and Rooney scored early on at the Etihad. But the absolute standout player that day from an Everton perspective, and it was a poor Everton side, um, the absolute standout player was Dominic Calvert-Lewin. He had three centre-backs up against him. One was John Stones, another one was Vincent Company, and then Nicholas Otamendi, who we can debate the merits of until the cows come home. <laughs> but it was nevertheless, it was three kind of pretty well-respected Premier League defenders and Calvert-Lewin that day was just absolutely fantastic but he was fantastic in a different kind of role to the one we're seeing now like like I was saying he, he was selfless he would run the channels he would come short and hold the ball I think that dual facet to his play and that dual aspect to his play has what's always intrigued me about him because he's quick enough to spin in behind and trouble defenders that way but he's also strong enough and adept enough in the air to win knock-ons, play with a partner, uh, link play pretty well. And when you've got that and you're, you're any kind of Premier League defender, I think that then becomes a troubling proposition because if you go tight, you, wor- you, wor- you worry that he's going to spin. And if you drop off, then you worry that he's going to win every flick on for players like Richarlison, who, who are obviously very dangerous. So that was the basis. And yes, people have doubted him a lot. He's known that. And even at Everton, people have doubted him. There, there, there were concerns among the fan base. Silver never really settled on a on a on a front man for any concerted period of time. This season, as I, as I wrote in the Calvert Lewin piece, I think Silver used four different strike options before for the lone striking role in four two three one before December. Uh, not only Calvert Lewin, but Richarlison, Jenk Tosin, uh, and Moise Keane as well, and. Didn't really stick with any of them for more than three or four games. By the time he'd left, he'd placed a little bit more faith in Dominic Calvert-Lewin. But it's only what's come since December, um, so in five, six months, that has kind of changed people's minds. Those detractors, that, that, that's what's changed their mind. They've, they've seen somebody that's refined his game in conjunction with Duncan Ferguson, in conjunction then separately and... Uh, independently with Carlo Ancelotti and he's gone from being as as one person described it to us a few months ago the striker that did not score to the striker that scores every type of scrappy goal under the sun um, and that's what you're mentioning there Seb you you look at his goals and unlike Richarlison who's got who scores every type of goal from from individual efforts to back post headers to tap-ins to, to curlers from the edge of the box most of Calvert-Lewin's goals come from attacking the space in the six-yard box. Um, one reason or another, he's not a fantastic dribbler. He's not going to score many from outside the box. Um, and yes, he's fantastic in the air, but that, that, that most of those goals come from inside the six-yard box. So it's been, a, it's been a process for player and club. But this has been a real maturation to the point where if you were to do a poll as to Everton's most improved player, it would be Calvert-Lewin followed by Mason Holgate. If you did another poll across the Premier League, Calvert-Lewin should still feature. Such has been the extent of his improvement. And I think he has to take a lot of credit for that. But also Duncan Ferguson and, and Carlo Ancelotti have done an awful lot for him too. No, I agree completely. Actually, it's, it's funny because, you know, um, as a fan, when you first see a player, you whether you want to or not, you just have an opinion of him. You either like him or you don't. You think he's going to be worth something or he's not. And um, Cavalier is one of the first in ages to actually win me round. 
where you know you turn around one day it, it's not it's not because of any particular moment it's just after a period of time when you've seen him when 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 you've seen him do enough good things or be effective in enough ways you just think yeah he's just you actually become intrigued by the player and um I think the goal that sums him up for me is um I think it was at St James's Park when it was his second goal of the game when he he, he attacked that space at the back post like you're talking about Paddy and he scored, but he made this, it was ridiculously imperfect contact with the ball. And it kind of, <laughs> he went into the net before the ball did, but yeah. he got there. And you just think that's the, that's kind of a, it's almost like a, an old school commodity in a forward, isn't it? It's just put the ball yeah. in the net yeah, and yeah, worry yeah, about the style yeah. later. Um, and it's almost like, I, I feel like I've been a bit of a snob with him. Um, as if because he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not obviously good at, at, at sort of, he doesn't, he doesn't really seem to possess any kind of nine, 10 out of 10 um, attributes. And so you think, oh, well, he's not a, um, you know, he's not, um, you know, stylish in the way that Richarlison is. He doesn't, he doesn't have the gifts of a Firmino. He isn't so sort of obviously um, effective like, a, you know, someone like Harry Kane. But he's honestly, he's, um, it's real testament to a player to kind of, to evolve. And you mentioned this in the piece and you talk about, um, how Ancelotti's arrival coincided with, you know, the work that, that um, added to the work done by Duncan Ferguson. What has been specifically behind the kind of the burst of goal scoring? Is this just confidence, or is this a product of the analysis that that that's been done behind the scenes and the kind of the um, yeah the tutelage of the player? I think it's a combination of of all of those things. I know from speaking to people close to the player that they credit. Ferguson's first game as as caretaker manager after Silva was sacked. They beat Chelsea 3-1 in December and Ferguson not only changed the system but he accommodated Calvert-Lewin as the focal point in that system and they look back on the confidence boost that that gave Dominic then as as being the kind of the the, the moment that changed everything for him, the catalyst for, for what we're seeing now. But I think in in isolation, confidence maybe only gets you so far. And what he's known is that, certainly from discussions with Ancelotti and Ferguson, he just wasn't, simply wasn't getting into enough goal-scoring positions. And there's been a lot of video work done by the player himself, but also with the coaches, on watching top strikers and looking at how goals are scored and then effectively deciding, well, this is the position I need to get into 9, 10, 11 times in the box. And if that means... I'm not chasing a lost cause into the corner flag towards the corner flag, then so be it. Because if we play by percentages here, I'll be in the right place at the right time, at least on a number of occasions. So that's played a big role. The confidence of and the faith shown in him by Duncan Ferguson. Ancelotti has added that sprinkle of stardust on top. And I think 4-4-2 as a system has been something that's maximised not only the ability of Calvert-Lewin, but Richarlison as well, they, they play better in tandem than they do on their own. A lot of the time we've looked at Richarlison and, and kind of questioned, what is he? Is he a is he a left-sided player that likes to cut inside on his right foot? Is he somebody that plays from the right and goes on the outside? Uh, does he play narrow just behind a striker? Does he play as the lone striker? And he, he, he performs well in all of those roles. He's a, he's a perfect modern forward, a little bit like Roberto Firmino. But it was only when the two were lined up together that things really started to click. And I think the reason they're such a good partnership is because between them, they do a little bit of everything and they almost make up for each other's shortcomings. If you've got Calvert-Lewin there isolated in a 4-5-1, he starts kind of go 
going wandering for the ball, maybe chases lost causes, like I said earlier, and doesn't have the ability that Richarlison does to pick up the ball 30 yards from goal and beat two players and, and put it in the bottom corner. <laughs> Flip that on its head and Richarlison needs somebody to shoulder a bit of physical burden to win some headers, put him into the position. Right, he's the more he's able too, isn't he? He is, he is, and I think I, yeah. I actually believe that he's Everton's best player. He's, he's Everton's most important attacker and um, has a skill set that could at some point appeal to elite clubs if, if it's not already. But facilitating him has also helped facilitate Calvert Lewin. They, they facilitate each other and they, they do that very, very well. Um, one of Ancelotti's big points so far this season, upon assuming the role, was just that Everton were not playing the ball forward enough quickly. And, and by that I don't mean let's lump it long Sam Allardyce style, but instead we need to make sure that we're progressing through the thirds quickly, that Richarlison's main attribute is isolating defenders and beating them with his pace and power. Let's give him the opportunity to do that. And if we get the ball to wingers in advanced positions quickly and get some crosses into the box. Dominic Calvert-Lewin's one of the best headers of the ball in the league from from an attacking perspective. So I think 4-4-2 has its created problems elsewhere uh, or exacerbated problems elsewhere as, as we discussed earlier with, with central midfield but arguably it's, it's made Everton's two strikers, two main strikers into quite quite a potent force to be reckoned with and, and even looking back to some of the games in, in February early March um, the game against Arsenal at the Emirates that Everton lost 3-2 they caused Arsenal no end of difficulty those uh, on that day could have scored 4-5 quite easily I think had a, a significantly higher XG than, than Arsenal if, you, if you're into, into those sorts of things and just, just looked like a side that was finally set up to maximise the abilities of players that for too, a little bit too long have been um, neglected slightly by, by successive coaches. Can I uh, spare a thought uh, for Gilvie Sigurdsson at this point as well? Because, uh, you know, it's really interesting talking about Richarlison and um, Calvert-Lewin, you know, I suppose facilitating each other in, in this in this um, this well-working partnership. But how does that impact Sigurdsson? And presumably that's a good enough result to 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 warrant moving Sigurdsson out of what I assume would be his, his preferred... 10 role. Um, I mean, I bring this up because I, I was thinking back to his time at, at Tottenham, Seb, um, and how after he left Swansea, he, could, he, he was never quite able to hold that position down because he ended up being moved around to facilitate other players. It feels a little bit like, you know, outside of the national team and outside of Swansea, that's sort of the story of Sigurdsson's career. How is it working now with him at, at, at Everton, Paddy? I think Sigurdsson stands to be the main loser from the move to Four two two, four four two. Sorry, from from four two three one, and and by that I mean you you've spoken of him there as what you consider to be an archetypal number ten. I think he himself considers that to be his best position in club football, even though he he plays as a as a number eight for Iceland. He likes getting on the ball. His his main attributes really are, are striking dead balls and ghosting into the box late on, or striking from distance himself. And in playing him deeper as Everton have had to, or playing him from the left, it means that he gets in fewer of those positions. You you, you lose something in Gilfie Sigurdsson in doing that. Um, and there were questions about Gilfie before um, the, the, the change of system. A lot of Everton fans were questioning whether Everton could afford a player as a number 10 who was touching the ball maybe 30 times on average a game. 
and you compare that to other players like Diogo Jota and and so, some of the guys at, at Leicester, and they're far more active in in general play. Um, Sigurdsson is it's it's almost become a cliche, but he's almost become a match of the day player in so far as people see a couple <laughs> yeah, of things that yeah, he yeah. does, and um, they make up for all manner of sins elsewhere. The fact that maybe for 89 minutes of football he, he could be relatively anonymous and that's not because he doesn't try he's actually a very hard working player and racks up an awful lot of yards on the pitch throughout a game but I think he for me at least he, he's become Ancelotti's biggest dilemma moving forward how do you accommodate Gilfie Sigurdsson a player that I mean actually he started all of the games he's been fit for under Ancelotti so successive managers have rated him and wanted to shoehorn him into the side Marco Silva, I was told, compromised on his usual 4-3-3 because he felt Sigurdsson was worth it. And for a while, Sigurdsson was worth it in that first season. Um, but the move to 4-4-2 means that he either plays as a central midfielder, deeper, limiting his influence on the attack, or he plays from the left in an area where I think Everton are actually quite well stocked. They, they play in 4-4-2, they, the left-sided midfielder, is effectively the the sur- surrogate number 10 and is allowed license to come inside and drift and create with Dean, Luca Dean going on the outside. Bernard and Iwobi both seem ideally suited to that sort of role and, and maybe Sigurdsson has some of those qualities too but I don't think he's strong enough in carrying the ball to do what either of those do and what's happened is I think he's been shoehorned into the side in this new system that doesn't overly suit him at present and he's had teething problems in and moving forward that remains an issue because he's he's now older than um, a lot of the other players in that Everton squad certainly in, in, in the midfield um, he's on a big contract a lengthy contract and a lot of people have asked me whether Everton should sell, sell Gilfie Sigurdsson but my question to that would be who buys Gilfie Sigurdsson in the current climate Who, where does he fit in because even teams like Sheffield United, first of all, they don't have the financial capability, you would think, to pay those kinds of wages, those transfer fees. But then even the even the sides that I've looked at traditionally as, as making bad decisions, teams like Newcastle, they, they couldn't <laughs> come into an awful lot of money. Would West Ham buy him? Well, you, oh, maybe Paddy, West Ham. He screams at West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 problem, the problem has been, of course, that Everton have been lumped in with those clubs over the years. Everton have been... I think a club that others have looked at, particularly when Mashiri first joined as being a side that would take a Morgan Schneidel off Manchester United, would take Theo Walcott and, and Alex Awobi off Arsenal. Yeah. And they, they they continue to or they have continued to make those decisions. One of the really interesting things looking back to the summer they signed Sigurdsson under Ronald Koeman was that they actually bought three number tents or put three players that wanted to play as a number 10. Was Rooney one of those? Four two three one. So they, they got Rooney uh, as part of the Lukaku deal. They also signed Davy Klassen, who's probably a number eight, but in a four two three one would play as a 10. So they this is just an example of the model thinking. They, they, they effectively recruited three players looking to play the same role, um, which had a severe impact on the balance of the side. And... Sigurdsson is, is obviously the last vestige of that but at the time Everton had decided they had a choice they, they liked James Madison at Norwich and they liked Gilfie Sigurdsson but the decision was taken Sigurdsson is the one that is going to guarantee a certain amount of goals and assists right now 
and he we we we're going to pay over the odds, but we're going to get somebody that pushes the team forward because we're not getting enough goals from midfield. For a while he did that, and for a while he he, he certainly paid his dues. The question mark, I think, remains now: what happens in four four two? What happens when he gets older? Who pays the fee? Who pays the wages? So I, I described him as the elephant in the room tactically for, for Carlo Ancelotti over the next 12 months. And if he's not sold, I would, and there's no indication he will be, by the way, but if he's not sold, I, I would stand by that. I, I, he's the one that I don't really see a place for in the current setup. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, listen, Paddy, I hope you'll come back in, uh, I don't know, six months' time and we can review the Sigurdsson situation then. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, listen, thanks so much for your time, and Seb, thanks to you also. Uh, we will be back next week with uh, with something else. Don't know what it is, but we'll do it. Uh, thanks. Au revoir. Au revoir.